Welcome to Wealth Well Done. Together, we'll cover a wide range of important topics surrounding money and the impact it has on our lives. From the sophisticated and highly valuable planning techniques of the ultra-wealthy to the commonly underutilized biblical teachings. Together, we'll work to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well. Here's your host, Eric Scoville. All right, and welcome to episode five of the Wealth Well Done podcast. We are picking up this week again where we left off last week with uh, our co-host here, Isaac Bennett, or our guest, I guess, Isaac Bennett. So Isaac last week got into a little bit of his approach to investments and, and how different that is from the normal uh, financial advisor prescripted model of dollar cost average into the S&P 500 for the next 40 years, and then you'll you'll wind up wealthy. And so we dismantled a few of the myths around that and and uh, started getting into real estate. And where we left off was was this idea of NOI, net operating income, and what an operator, what a good operator is trying to do when they are looking to invest in real estate. So we're going to pick up where we left off there. Um, but before we do, again, thank you for joining us. This is the Wealth Well Done podcast, where we go after the tactical, practical, and spiritual advice to help you do your wealth well done. And as always, these uh, the advice that we're going over here is not specific to you or your situation. We encourage you to get your own uh, counsel around anything that we're talking about here to decide what makes sense for your situation. Um, so Isaac Bennett here, founder of UR, partner with REM Capital, business partner of mine to make sure we're very clear on that, that I'm I'm teeing him up for, <laughs> for big sales here. And I don't want to I don't want you guys to think that I am uh, being any way misleading around that. So. Um, so we're going to jump right in where we left off yesterday, or <laughs> I'm going to call it last week here, but it was three minutes ago. <laughs> the recording. So the the best operators go into sometimes what appear to be, I'm going to call it crappy situations, crappy, crappy locations on the surface. And they're going out and, and not necessarily that, but they're, they're going after things that other people aren't, that they can find a property that that they see more value than what the seller sees in it. And they are going to try to drive up the net operating income. And how does that how does that impact the investment? Why do they do that? What can you give elaborate on that? Yeah, and just to clarify something I said, there's nothing wrong with buying in a great location. In fact, it's often wonderful to find an asset that is being severely underutilized in a great location. Mm-hmm. If sure. you can have great locations, that's a huge benefit. My only point is, is there's nothing guaranteed about you. you it's like paying an exorbitant price for stocks. There's a really good chance if it's in a great location, you're paying through the nose for it, right? So when you're looking at a, a, a great operator and what they're trying to do, they're not buying real estate for what it's doing. They're buying real estate for what they can make it do. Okay. Okay, so you know if they come into a property that has $100,000 of net operating income, they're going to look at this and say, can I increase this net operating income by 50, 75, 100% through better management, through tenant improvements, through... Um, CapEx through any number of things to say, what can we do to make this a more desirable property to lease? And is that re- are those numbers realistic? Oh, absolutely they are. Yeah, absolutely they are. What type of time frame? It just depends on the business plan. But I mean, you'll see great operators turn a property in two, three years and, and you know, really make 50% or 75% or 100% of the net operating. I think something that people have to understand about real estate is it depreciates. And I don't mean on I don't mean on a, on a page. All real estate depreciates, and all real estate is a liability. Okay, mm-hmm. and so if you think about it from that standpoint, the wealth is not the property; it's not the real estate; it is the lease. 
the wealth is the lease. Because wealth ultimately is a future series of cash flows discounted back to today. That's wealth, right? Yeah. And so the wealth in real estate is the lease. So a great operator is coming in and saying, I'm not buying this building for the wealth. I'm buying it for the ability to create wealth through new leases or higher rents or better management or whatever it is. The wealth generated, and this is a very critical thing to understand, is the lease. Okay. Yeah. And so if you can reframe your mind around real estate being a liability, period, and if your tenant moves out or if they stop paying, you'll find out really quickly that it's a liability. All real estate's a liability. Then... Yeah you can really start to understand the value of a great operator and start to understand the value of a business plan that says, here's where it's at today. Here's what I can make it tomorrow. And that's where the wealth is in between those two things. Okay, That is an approach that I'm guessing uh, not a lot of people take toward real estate. Well, it's, it's actually amateur on the amateur side of this. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you look at like Kiyosaki's teachings, he says, your house is not an asset. And I take it one step farther and says, your investment's not an asset until you have a lease that pays. Because it's a liability. The wealth is the lease. And, and just if you, if you take one thing away from this, remember that the wealth is the lease because that's the future stream of cash flows. That's what you're selling. At the end of the day, you're selling the lease. You're not selling the property. That's how real estate trades. Okay. All right. Your approach to real estate. So you have, you have started with your own business, your own properties that yep. you made, single family uh, rentals that you purchased. You have, you now have developments going in Belize. Yeah, as well. You participate in a number of passive investments through these multifamily operators. And you're also looking at acquiring some some more properties. So you're, you've gone all active, heavy passive, and now you're getting into active again with some more real estate that, that you're looking to acquire. We are looking to acquire as well. So can you help us understand a for you know maybe for a more experienced real estate investor who's who's done the normal track right the normal track is you start with one single family home and then you do another and another and another you do the bird method or whatever you're doing to build up your portfolio now you've got 12 or 42 um, single family houses that you run you realize the burden of that and then you go to mm-hmm. you know you start getting a multifamily and you you go that route but eventually you realize just how much work is in real estate you mentioned this in the last week's episode of of the the the, the number of businesses that are inside real estate. So what are you looking at to decide when I want to be active and when I want to be passive? Uh, I want to always be passive. Okay. Yeah, that's the reality of it. I think that very few people should be an active real estate operator. There are people out there that are cut out for it. And you kind of know them when you see them. But most people are working a day job. Most people aren't passionate about being a landlord. They like the idea of what real estate can create for them. Like passive income and mailbox money. Yes. If you can say, I am passionate about taking tenant calls, then you should be an active operator. If you cannot honestly say that, be very honest with yourself and say, yeah, I just do that because it's part of the deal. You should be passive. Because first of all, there's people better out there than me, than you, than anybody at running these types of things. They have bigger schemes. They're more on the ground. This, This is what they do. Um, and second of all, it's just when you're honest with yourself about what that is, it can really free you up to do a lot of things in life. And, and for me, that was the the journey, Eric, which was I had a lot of real estate in my own account. I even did my own property management and all these other things for way too long before I realized that other people were a lot better at this than me and that I should be putting my hard-earned dollars with them rather than trying to do it on my own scale. Also, scaling single family or duplexes is just a very difficult business. Right. It's a very difficult business. All of your profits 
for a year can go out the window in a snap. In fact, they usually do. And I just don't think that most people achieve what they want to achieve through single family. It is possible, but it's hard and it takes a lot of work and a lot of time. And I think ultimately everybody should do it to start. But if you come to where I was, which is recognizing that scale and a professional operator were better, just be honest with yourself really quickly. So what businesses are in real estate? You have leasing, you have acquisitions, you have accounting, you have legal, you have sometimes you are a, uh, a peace officer, sometimes you're a family counselor, sometimes you're a repair person, sometimes you are a, uh, you know, I think I just named seven and we, we're just scratching the surface. Sometimes you're a lawn care person. Sometimes you, it's everything, right? Because most of business is actually centered around real estate in some way or another. And if you're actively managing and operating real estate, you're just all those businesses at once. You know, so you can go out, you can organize other people to do them. You can be a GC on these types of things, but you know, good luck. Good luck with it. It's tough. It's tough. So there's, there's all these different things. There's financial advising, there's banking, there's, <laughs> it goes on and on and on and on. It's a bunch of different businesses in one. Okay. And so that's, that lends to the point of being passive allows you to do your, your job, which is earn the capital, bring the capital to the table and partner with world-class operators to do the other pieces of this. Yeah, we really figured out that we were only good with one thing, which was explaining deals and explaining why a particular deal was better than something else and also just identifying the underwriting, understanding what would work and what would not work. And so we we took the position of saying, hey, look, we would be better partnered up with a major operator like Robert, like REM, and really working in investor relations on that side. So that that's really what led to that epiphany, if if you know, if you will. Yeah. Um, and it was mainly just recognizing I was bad at a lot of stuff. <laughs> All right. So so listeners next week we'll get to listen to uh, to two episodes with Robert. Great. Yeah, great. Um, Tee him up a little bit in a way that if you're being brutally honest, he, he may listen or he might not hear this. But what what is it about REM that makes you want to not only put your own dollars into this, but also take the people who trust you? And, and there is a we, we've talked about this. There's just a huge responsibility um, when people trust you with advising them on where to put their money. And so as you're doing something like this, especially a little bit outside the box compared to the normal stock market approach sure. here. There's just a, there's a there's a burden that comes with this. So why are you so much more comfortable with Robert and REM Capital? There's many reasons, but it all starts with two things that I think you have to have to run a syndication business effectively. You you know what I'm going to say already, but credibility mm-hmm. and integrity. So credibility talks about can they do what they say they will do, not. Are they going to try to do what they said they do? It's can they do it? Are they effective in being able to execute the business plan that they say they can? And Robert has a great track record and wonderful credibility. And the latter part of this, which is a non-negotiable and everything that we do is integrity, which is if they say they're going to do something, do they have every intention of doing that? Now, things happen. But do they have every intention of carrying out their word with integrity? And it's becoming harder and harder to find. And Robert has pristine integrity. And so when I start looking at this, it's integrity and credibility. I will absolutely sacrifice. And I'm not saying REM asked people to sacrifice this, but I'm looking for those two things long before I'm looking at any numbers 
because numbers lie. Numbers don't have any integrity because you can put anything you want on a performa and say, this is what's going to happen. But a performa by its very nature is predicting the future and a fool's errand to even do. So I, I laugh at performers in general because they just, they mean nothing. Yeah. And it's about, does the operator have the credibility and the integrity to pull off what they say they're going to do? Does that mean all performers are bad? Or no. the necessary evil that you just need to take with a grain of salt? They're not bad. They're just, they lie to you. You take them with a big old lump of salt and you poke holes in them and you figure out how conservative is this underwriting? That's the other thing. If we got nitty gritty into the weeds about Robert, he underwrites like I want him to underwrite, which is very conservatively. Yeah. He is going to estimate increases in cap rates. He's going to estimate dramatic increases in uh, vacancies or insurance costs or, or taxes costs. And he's going to underbid on things like inflation, rent increases, et cetera. And so not to say performers are bad. It's just that they're almost always starry-eyed to optimistic. Okay. Yeah. I, I, for everything that I've looked at, I would completely agree with you there. Um, so let's do, this is going to be a little bit of a transition. We're going to, I want to focus on this for real estate first, and then we're going to do the same thing back toward the other side of that barbell that we talked about last week, yeah. toward the risky, the riskier side, um, on the venture capital or wherever we're going with that. So first for real estate, how do you define risk? How do you assess risk? Hmm. I define risk in a couple of different ways because I think risk and volatility often get confused for one another and they're two very different things. This goes back to things to say to clients. Yeah, this goes back to the 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 idea of liquidity, right? Yeah. And the volatility really shaking out weekends and and um and li- liquidity events. Volatility is something you could never get rid of. You can only move it around. It's like a spring, right? It builds and it eases. It builds and it eases. You can't get rid of it. It's just a law of nature. Risk is different because in the fiat currency world that we have, you might think it's risky to invest your money. And I think it's risky not to. You might think it's risky to uh, go out and get in a deal and lose your money because you might lose your money. And I think it's risky not to. I think it's risky to do nothing. I think the most risky thing in today's day and age is to do nothing. Because one, they're they're creating this currency. And make no mistake about it, the Fed has a thousand different ways to say one thing, print. They have one tool, it's print. That's it. And so I don't think you can learn anything without getting involved. Because at least this is the way I am. I only learn stuff when I get out there and fall on my face. And so I think you have to get out there and fall on your face so many times to actually learn something. And the number one mistake I see people make is they analyze way too much. They have analysis paralysis. And the problem is, is they don't know what they're talking about. They're analyzing something they don't conceptually understand. Sure. And if you're analyzing something you don't understand, you're just spinning yourself in a circle, right? So going back to specifically about real estate, how I think about risk is uh, there's so many factors, but it's it's you're thinking about the 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 trajectory of the area, the location. You're thinking about, does this area need the products that we're bringing to it? What are the factors that are going to drive employment over the longer term? What are the weather factors that are out there? What are the tax incentives going into this? What can I understand about how this transaction might change the tax profile of this? What are the counterparties on this deal? What's the tenant makeup look like? What does 
Is this the thing we're going? Yeah, for? no, this is okay. great because this is not what most people think of when they think yeah. of risk. What are the assumptions baked into the underwriting? What is the debt on it? That's a huge one. How much debt? Um, one of my favorite ones is what is the unlevered yield on cost or UYAC? Can you explain that? Yeah, it's very simple. Strip debt out of the equation. What is the yield on the price? So if you paid $1,000 for it and you're making $100 on it, your unlevered yield on cost per year is 10%, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Now, there's all sorts of accounting chicanery out there and other things. Change those numbers. You have all sorts of different things, IRR, cash on cash, um, you know, compound annual growth. There's all, you know, all of them, right? But at the end of the day, what is my unlevered yield on cost? And how does that reflect maybe a, a typical going in cap rate for a similar property, right? So this is a way to look at it by, by stripping out the debt and saying, irrespective of what the debt is, what is my return before I put a debt component on it? And I think that that is a very basic and critical way to look at the, the value that you're getting in your basis, what your basis is uh, against what the income should be a, a stabilization. And then you add the debt component back in to really understand how it fits into your portfolio. Awesome. All right. That is uh, a ton for someone to chew on. I would encourage you if you are a real estate investor or contemplating getting into real estate, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that a couple of times and break down, break down each of those terms. So I understand what they mean and just start to understand what you don't understand about about your actual real estate or your investments, or um, especially if you are making passive investments into syndications, what you don't understand about uh, what you're actually investing in. And you don't need to understand all of it. You're not going to understand all of it, but you need to understand enough to know that this is a good spot for you to put your money or not. So next thing, let's switch now to the other side of the barbell. So last last week, we, we talked about the, the barbell approach here, and you're saying somewhere between 80 to 90% of of someone's assets should be to the more conservative side of the barbell. And now on the aggressive side there, let's talk about what you're putting in that side of the barbell. And then, so first, what do you put into that side of the barbell? Um, traditionally, I've been putting things like, I've got a long history of investing in biotech with some success and some failures. That is the main thing that I have looked at is some venture investing. Um, I also invest in uh, royalties, music royalties, and some other things. And that, that, that probably is actually more on the conservative side, but it's a little bit more speculative. You know, and then in our business, of course, we have partnered with, uh, with folks that we love in an equity position to help run their investor relations departments. And so I think that's been a really eye-opening uh, <laughs> adventure so, to seeing just how difficult it is to raise money, how much people struggle struggle with it, how difficult it is to tell the story a thousand times, and just really everything that a founder goes through. Yeah. <laughs> I have so much respect for founders and entrepreneurs and let it be heard loud and clear. The banking system is not the engine of the economy. The currency is not the engine of the economy. Entrepreneurs are the engine of the economy. Absolutely. And if somebody tells you something differently, run. Because they have a completely warped and twisted mind about the role that banks and the Federal Reserve play. It's people, it's entrepreneurs, it's people that are wealth creators, not money or products. Amen. Amen. All right. So inside this, inside this piece of the barbell here, how are you? How are you looking at risk differently? Well, it's position sizing, right? Where you know, if you think about, let's say you're worth a million dollars and you're going to put ten percent of your assets into. Uh, into things on this side of the barbell. You're going to put $100,000 of your of your wealth into this. You're not putting $100,000 of it into one idea. 
right? You're thinking about putting a minimum, you know, maybe $5,000 into 20 ideas. And that's really how I would start thinking about it is if I lose all of my money in this, then what effect is it going to have on my overall picture? You know, and it's, it's this idea, Andy Duke wrote a great book about it called Thinking in Bets. And it's really just about position sizing very effectively, knowing that if it pays off, if this pays off, it's going to have a profound impact on my picture. And if I lose it, I'm going to lose 1% or less of my, of my wealth. So it's, it's really that idea all comes down to position sizing for me. Okay. So if you're position sizing inside this, this side of the portfolio, how much are you focused on? Do you want to, you know, like you said, you, you got into biotech. Do you want to get good at understanding biotech and try to have maybe five to 10? Obviously, it's going to depend on how much money someone has in that side of the portfolio. Yeah. But, you know, to, to go after the biotech industry and say, I'm going to be good at biotech and I'm going to just, you know, diversify a little bit inside that space? Or are you saying, let's get one biotech, let's get one, you know, and go on down the line here with other other opportunities that we can put on that side of the barbell? Definitely the former. I mean, with one exception, you should always invest within your circle of competence and it's smaller than you think. Hmm. Um, The longer I live, the more I realize I know nothing about anything. (laughs) And so if you are a, a, uh, a doctor, uh, a scientist, a chemist, a biologist, and you understand things in the biotech world really well, stick within that. Um, if you are in the construction trades and you understand building and the trades really well, maybe stick within that. Yeah. Because the second you get outside of it, you just don't know what you're talking about. You just don't. I just don't know anything about anything. It's I, I don't. I mean, real estate is the only. I really believe I, I know a lot about two topics, real estate and baseball. And I caveat real estate. I compared to a, a real world class operator. I am not world class. Sure. I understand the concepts. I understand what I'm looking for very well. And it's definitely my circle of competence. But I'm realistic about what I don't know. And so I think that with one exception, you should stay exactly within your circle of competence and look for opportunities in that space because your hit rate is going to be so much higher. Here's the one exception. Your cousin that you love is starting a restaurant. And he wants 50 grand and you to come in and partner with him and you want to see his dream come true, his or her dream come true. Life's too short not to do that. Try it. It's advice you won't hear very often. No, yeah. It's, and, and, and life's too short. Not, money is not worth it. If you want to empower somebody and, and you are the conduit, you have the money to spend, it's a small portion of your portfolio and you can empower somebody to do it. The regret will come in not helping or not trying, not, not the regret won't come because you lost your money. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And maybe, maybe your cousin can make a mean pizza. Right. Like, you know, <laughs> who knows? Exception, I would say. Which, and, and to my side of things, seeing that I would say your cousin might make a mean pizza, but doesn't mean he's going to run a good business. You got to make sure he knows what he's doing. He or she knows what they're doing on the business side, too. No doubt about it. Yeah. I'm not saying throw money at bad ideas. I'm saying if you see an entrepreneur that you believe could be empowered, that you care about, make it happen. Okay. Make it happen. Let's, let's go after, that then so we i haven't talked much about you are launched at this point um and, and we'll, we'll get into that more but you are launched is is a company that that isaac and i are partners in as well as some other partners in this the the idea being to go after these entrepreneurs and so they might not be our cousins but they're people who we <laughs> they're brothers from another mother right but they are they are people who we absolutely 
believe in and want to see succeed, we get behind, we we are behind their vision. Um, we've we've done this with Pringle Robotics, and that and that founder Sudhir Saja is nice uh, genius, absolutely, yeah. and the most likable guy that that we could ever meet too. He's a real sweetheart. Um, the and he's he's poised to make investors a lot of money. But the next one now, so Elysium, Elysium Therapeutics. I want to spend a minute talking about that. This is not real estate or baseball. And so we're in this and maybe we'll, we'll give a little background as to why and we can talk about our other partner, Isaac Schaefer, and, and what credibility he has lent to that and why that's given us confidence to go into that. Um, so let's do, actually take that back. We're going to go to Elysium in just a minute. First, I want to say, why would, where would you ever invest in any type of other passive investment? Again, whether this is people who, who invest with us or just advice you're giving to them that are, they're never going to invest with us. But why would someone ever choose to invest in a passive opportunity that they don't, that's outside their circle of competency? Well, first of all, I would tell them if there's not a particular human reason to do it, don't do it. In Elysium, uh, there's a, go, partic- go ahead, there's go, a go particular ahead. human reason to do it, yeah. right? Um, first of all, I talked about two boxes earlier, credibility and integrity. You look at Greg Sturmer and Tom Jenkins, and um, they reek credibility and integrity. These are guys that both have two exits on their resume already from biotech companies. They have some of the most complex IP on the face of the planet that I have seen. They have on their board uh, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Bob Rappaport, who is the FDA division director for pain medications, effectively. Former. Former. Retired. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Retired now. But holy credibility, right? They have a platform that I believe in. Our business partner, Isaac Schaefer, is from the medical industry. So I would say this is within his circle of competence. So, you know, we're, we're choosing things in that nature that we do have, even if it's not me or you, we have somebody on our team that has that circle of competence. And they might just save a couple hundred thousand lives a year. We got enough time. How about how about a a high level overview of what Elysium is? Yep, Elysium Therapeutics is a private seed stage. Uh, we'll call it clinical stage, really. Biotech company in phase one trials. They have a three product platform to fight the opioid epidemic on three different levels. The first level is in phase one trials. It's called O two P. And O2P is effectively a drug delivery mechanism system that does not allow you to overdose on an opioid. And, and it can be applied to any of the on-market opioids that are out there, any of the brand names that you're used to or any of the um, uh, alternatives that you're used to, right? Yep. What it does is it engineers the release of opioid into your system using things that are already in your gut called trypsin. To, if you take two pills, you get a clinical dose. If you take four pills, you get a clinical dose. If you take 15 pills, you get a clinical dose. Clinical dose being? A clinical dose of the drug that you're taking, whatever okay. it may be, whatever the opioid is. And it's a delivery mechanism, right? So they're not, they haven't created anything new. They've created a new way for your system, your body to interact with an opioid, which is amazing because then if you have somebody that is literally trying to get high or trying to overdose, they can't do it. That's O2P. Very shortly and simply, that's O2P. Um, that alone is a world-changing technology. Not only for the people who may try to overdose now, but also preventing future addiction. Absolutely correct. Yeah, absolutely correct. Because they can only take as much as they are dosed to give. The second platform 
is a uh, mechanism where they can actually engineer the shelf life of these to last, say, 21 days. Why is that important? Well, current opioids on the market have a shelf life of a half-life, as it's called in the industry, of at least 80 years. And they know this because they found opioids from uh, them. They're still over 90% efficacious after 80 years. Yeah. And so what will happen in many cases is grandma will have a toothache and she'll get a 14-day dose or a three-week dose and um, uh, prescription. And she'll take it for two days while her tooth hurts and then it doesn't hurt anymore. She'll, she'll leave it in there as everyone does. They leave it in their medicine cabinet. Grandson comes in, he wants to hang out with his friends. He wants to be cool and try something. He tries a few of them. Or maybe somebody else in the family got hurt and they start taking them outside of the prescribed dosage and they're hooked. And that's it. And it spins them down a whirlwind of negative side effects and addiction and other things. And this is happening hundreds of thousands of times a year in the United States alone. Right. Um, And that's not even getting into like the fentanyl disaster. That's where someone starts it with from grandma's stash, but then they go out and solicit other drugs that they can get on the street, which aren't that hard to get, obviously. And then that's when the fentanyl issue starts to kick in. And a massive percentage of heroin abusers started with opioids. Yeah. Massive percentage, like 90% plus. It's huge. Um, And and then fentanyl is just its own totally different disaster that's out there because it's, what, 100 times more potent than the opioids, than heroin, 100 times. And so um, you you have this massive problem with that. But their second platform, long story short, engineers that the shelf life is basically totally inert after, say, three weeks, right? That's huge. The third one is called Super, and it is a dramatically advanced, uh, it's a huge advancement to Narcan. So anybody, if you're a firefighter or a, a policeman or anybody in medical response of any variety, you know what Narcan is, right? Which is the drug that counteracts opioids in your blood. It's so bad now. They have Narcan in vending machines. Yeah. Narcan is available all over now. When you just saw it, it just went to where it can be bought over the counter just last week or the week before. Yeah. The FDA said, yeah, you can buy this over the counter. That's great. I, I'm all for this. Everybody should have it. Here's the problem. It doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work because opioids themselves have become so much more potent and the dosages you know, per milligram that you're getting, it's like 30 times what we started at, right? Yeah. And you know, when people are overdosing, you might have to give them four, five, six uh, Narcan shots before they wake up. And even then, in many cases, they're still dead on arrival at the hospital. That's not even talking about fentanyl. Fentanyl, Narcan just doesn't work. You know, they might give them six, seven, eight, nasal sprays of, of Narcan, and it still doesn't wake them up. They're still dead before they get to the hospital. So super is a response to the gratuitously growing nature of the strength of opioids and fentanyl. Uh, of course, fentanyl is an opioid, but dramatically stronger than the stuff that's on the market yeah. to actually wake somebody up long enough to get them to the hospital, keep their brain functioning, keep blood flowing to their brain, and, and keeping them alive, you know, so they can be treated by a doctor in a hospital by the time they get there. And super is the world's chance to actually have this happen. And that, that alone could save tens of thousands of lives a year. So they have this three-pronged approach to fighting the opioid crisis. And man, I hope they pull it off because the human impact here, not setting aside even the gains that can be made and the gains that can be made are a magnitude of order larger than, you know, the other types of things we're talking about. There are hundreds of thousands of lives per year at stake in the United States alone and countless 
across the world, millions across the world that could be saved if this platform works. And um, early trials look really good. They had uh, trials in dogs, did exactly what they believe it should do. They've moved over into phase one trials and so far it looks good. There's a whole lot of information that we won't get into about the way they're interacting with the FDA, the money they've received from federal and state grants. It's a lot more than you might think it is by looking at this small private biotech company. It's really compelling. How do investors or people who are just, whether they're wanting to invest with you or just wanting to learn more about, you know, follow you on Twitter or anything else like that, how, how can someone learn more about you or connect with you? Yeah, if you want to see my dark side, go follow me on Twitter, Isaac C. Bennett. You can, you can get all my snark out there. I try really hard not to be actually, but certainly my email, Isaac at a peoplebrand, a peoplebrand.com um, works as well. Or, you know, certainly you can put my contact information in the show notes and they can reach out to me sure. anytime. Email is probably the best way to get me. Okay. All right. Well, thank you thank for you. your fun. advice, your wisdom here. Um, and thank you for listening. Hope you'll tune in next week. As like we said before, we have Robert Rissenthaler, the CEO of REM Capital on. That is a, uh, we've already recorded this episode, so I know that that is a, a real treat for you. Uh, so look forward to having you guys on next next week. And thank you again. Thank you again for listening to Wealth Well Done. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. And together, we'll continue to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well.